Tuia, tui, tuia. Tuia te hā, tuia te kupu, tuia te kōrero. Tāu te māramatanga ki hei mauri ora. Nga mana, nga iwi, nga reo. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Mihi mai ki te whakatau o te pānui, whakamaumaharatanga, a Margaret Mahinei, ka whakawhetai toku manua mo tēnei wahanga o te huihui kupu 2021. Nō reira ngā manuhiri tuarangi, ngā manuhiri tatamai tonu e hoama, whānau mā hoki. Ara mai nei, ka whakahuihui mai ngā tāngata kahurangi koutou katoa. Āpiti hono tātai hono. Te hunga mate ki te hunga mate, te hunga ora ki te hunga ora ki ngā mate. Kua wehe ana haere, haere, haere ki te pō, ki a koutou e tūanei te ao mārama, nau mai, nau mai, tomo mai ki te kōrero, ki ora koutou e hoa mā. My name is Ben, and it is my pleasure, my privilege, and with deep humility, my genuine honour, to be able to welcome you here today and present to you the Margaret Mahi Memorial Lecture Word 2021. Te kaupapa o te pānui nei, he whai whakaaro kei roto i te whakamahi o te pōhewa, which is to say that I would like to share with you a personal reflection, a meditation into the workings of imagination. As applicable, say, to a poet of my particular disposition and inescapable whakapapa, attended as I must inevitably be with the accumulated consequences, baggage and biases, the sum of my experiences, the artefacts, relics, references, and mythologies filed away in my archive of memories, accrued in these 59 and one-third years beyond the confines and safety of the womb, to which I would briefly add that the one-third of a year doesn't really account for anything, equating as it does with the first few months of existence shared by virtually every mother-born single one of us that is universally the only non-linguistic period in our lives, the empty space, the void, te wā o te kore o tātou ora, that space of nothing in our lives because we have no language. We are unaware of ourselves and the world in which we have entered. This unrelenting barrage of chaos and cacophony flooding our still developing senses with meaningless streams of noise and no perception. We see without seeing, we hear without hearing. Every utterance now a little more than a reflex, a spasm, perhaps the automatic twitching and flexing of new tissues within unfamiliar organs and cavities full of obstructions, issuing forth a random collection of oohs and ahs and gargles and burbles of no distinctly individual human deliberation. The one utterance of this non-linguistic period in our lives that I would offer as a possible exception to this idea of non-deliberation, of non-intention, the ubiquitous cry of a baby and the mother who knows what it means. Always begins with the mother. I don't know if it's a poet's conceit, but I like to imagine sometimes that there must have been a moment when the first words were uttered, you know, and the other primate, the other human, went, oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> and I like to think that the first words were uttered by a poet because they must have been because it's like a metaphor. Anyway, that's my conceit. 
<clears throat> I'm often drawn to contemplate the firelight of universal origin, imagining the warmth and illumination of the primal flame that offered in its glow a sanctuary and security against the darkness of unknown forces and comfort to an awakening human spirit not yet quite able to explain itself. The beginnings of a discreet and particular whakapapa were already stirring there, though in the infancy of humanity we would not yet have discerned such elemental forces. We are still blind and mute in dumb and stubborn occupancy of our vaguely defined space, wherein and soon a female element, lost in every darkness, will commence its dialogue with us somewhere in the caverns of all our darkened silences. We each and every one of us know this female element, this woman, hidden in every darkness. She is Hinyangaro, which we call the mind. She has always known how to find her way in the darkness. This is how Hinyangaro, the woman who is concealed, must always survive. But if Hinyangaro is to thrive, she must awaken Pohewa to his potential. On the face of it, things don't look good. Within Pohewa, there is Pohe, and Pohe is blind. He cannot see. Pohe cannot sense, so he is withered and confused. All Pohe knows is Poh and Wa. He Poh is always a darkness, always and ever a night. Hewa is somewhere, a place and a space in time. See, Einstein thought he invented time and space, but meh. Hewa. Hewa, therefore, even in the darkness, offers Pohe a broad context of all possibilities at some time or another. But before we all whakaeke kite marama, ki oho, ki a kite, ki a rongorongo tonuake, before we climb into the light, before we embark in order to see, to perceive, to understand with all the senses, we must first mihi whakatau te kore. We must acquaint ourselves with the immensity of the nothing that is te kore, the absolute nothing of the infinite void of unlimited potential. Isetimatanga ko te kore. Te kore te fiwhiā, te kore te rawe, te kore i ai, te kore te wiwiā, beginning with the nothing, the void in which the nothing is possessed, the void in which nothing is left, the void with nothing in union, the void without boundaries. This is te kore, the nothing that precedes te pō, the night. Te pō nui, te pō roa, te pō ururi, te pō kere kere, ka pō tifa. Te pō te kitea, te pō tangotango, te pō whāwhā. Te pō namu namu ki tai au, te pō tāhuri atu, te pō tāhuri mai ki tai au. The great night, the long night, the deep night, the intense night, the dark night. The night in which nothing is seen, the night of intense darkness, the night feeling, the night seeking the passage of the world, the night of restless turning, the night of turning towards the revealed earth. This it's te kore, the nothing that precedes te pō, the night of every dark and gloomy shade, te kore, the absolute nothing, ki te pō, the utter darkness and totality of night, ki te whaiao, to the glimmering dawn, ki te ao marama arā, tau te maramatanga. Thus we stand a light of understanding. The potential for absolute mana 
that is the collective power and authority of humanity, burst into existence the moment we saw and knew and understood that what we imagine we can render and what we render we can share. The Port Nicholson Exchange and Public Library opened in 1841 was situated in a building around about where the Wellington Cenotaph is today, near the corner of Molesworth Street and Lambton Quay, and it is noted in the histories as the first public library in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It closed one year later after defaulting subscription levels and other library services rendered the utility untenable. The collection was dispersed mostly to the Institute of Mechanics, then in the process of setting up a library of their own, which would itself decline to closure by 1843, as competition from other newly established institutes and associations began to offer library exchange facilities to varying degrees of success. Not until the late 1880s did the Wellington City Council begin its interventions, gathering disparate collections together securing the long-term viability and therefore utility of a public library service as both an essential and accessible provision of any progressive and civic society. I might add that 100 years ago they worked out that user pays wasn't going to work for libraries. And anyway, I've got news for the histories because when I was a kid, my mum took me to the first public library in Aotearoa and it was still open. What's more, it's still open today. And what's more than more, it's a Māori library of an oral culture and it opened the first day off the waka. Mum took me to the Harakeke section of the oldest library in Aotearoa. No more than a minute's walk from my bedroom. Turning west, down the hallway, through the glass-panelled Art Deco door at the end that opened onto a curved concrete porch, impressively pillared but merely for effect, three steps up or down depending upon your perspective, then westward still across a lawn of vast expanse that one day I would have to mow with precision, every Sunday in the flush of spring and early summer till the dry-off made it somehow less of a chore. Where I would find myself there, in the company of an old corfi tree, which, by the way, you should never offend with the indignities of axe or saw, nor any example of machinery that would topple it or otherwise dislodge it from the whenua. Corfi has potency. Seek permission, seek permission before you mess with such energies as these that render the yellow of the sun, or you do so at your peril. Beside the Kōwhai tree, the Harakeke section of the oldest library in Aotearoa announces its presence, its wisdom, its age, its obvious utility, with a gentle clattering of seeds in their pods and great tupuna leaves in conversation with tāwhiria mātea of the winds and storms. Emerging from the earth with such a sense of enduring permanence that mum reckoned, because of its great size, it would have been part of a pā Harakeke, a plantation of indomitable unity. So the metaphors and stories start there. And I learn as my mother gathers harakeke leaves. Tuia, tui tuia. This is the act of sewing, of threading, of lashing or binding so that strands, threads, ropes, strings, plaits and cords of similar dimension are brought together by certain techniques and skills. Tui is to sew, as with a bone needle, 
or to twist and splice together with strong and dexterous fingers and special knowledge, whānanga, on the qualities and nature of the fibres and the plants so as to form links or otherwise bind them in unions of greater strength. Tuiatehā is the threading of breath. The voice, the tone, the tombra and intonation. Tuiatekupu is threading the word. A defining agency, a vehicle of meaning, a name, a deed, a shape of things, a state of being. Tuiatekorero is threading the story. The narrative, the revelation of intent. Tau te maramatanga, mine is the light of understanding. Tihei mauriora, and there you have, in a sense, the whakapapa of a story. From imagination to understanding. Muka are the fibrous linen-like threads that run the length of a harakeke leaf, giving it the fabled strength of the origin stories. Maui could not have bound the sun nor fished up the land without the muka. Using a muscle shell to scrape away the green backing of a harakeke leaf reveals and releases the muka in a process called haro. In twisting the muka, the fibrous nature of the threads cause them to naturally bond back together so that longer, continuous threads can be produced, which themselves can be twisted and bound, and so on and so forth. In this way, strands, cords, lines for fishing and knotting of nets, lashings, ropes, riggings, every manner and means of binding and securing for use at sea, on land, in the forests, rivers and lakes, Harakeke and muka provide the utility of binding to existence. Securing whare, kainga and pa palisade, ensuring the net and the snare will feed the whānau, fly the kite and fling the dart, and with appropriate incantation, karakia, see what the kite and the dart can see. Muka thongs the mere paunamu, firmly to the hand as the blow is struck home. Muka are the threads for sewing and fine weaving and adorning gracing heitiki and other beloved taonga to hang upon your breast. Mukatuya, threading strands together, forming a stronger union. So, of course, you begin to see the nature of metaphor that emanates from a harakeke. In tuiataha, tuiatekupu, tuiatekorero, I imagine the muka as a uniting thread from the first breath of origin and thought through the assemblage of words, the gathering and coalescence of meaning and purpose and the unfolding mythology of story, edited, refined, added to in the great garret of my imagination, shared eventually by some means or other, so that if you care to take even a passing interest, you will soon enough divine my inner aesthetic and weigh for yourself the value of my observations. For as long as I can remember, words, ngā kupu, have been my primary resource of elaboration regarding my own sense of the tikanga o te wā, which you might think of as the way things are. Words are my way of rendering reality imagined into existence according to some vague idea or whim or to some specific utility, but to my mind always in there somewhere, filling the gaps. The metaphor of the harakeke is not limited to the binding qualities of the muka, nor to the filling of gaps. This majestic plant went a long way towards ensuring the survival of the people, allowing the ancestors to achieve viable settlements here and thence to thrive. No wonder then that the Māori imagination has imbued this plant with so much symbolism. In the juvenile harakeke plant, the afirito, 
we see the young seedling frond called Rito in the centre of an embrace, an uffy of older leaves in the way parents might embrace the child in a nurturing and protective manner. If we observe the way a harakeke plant establishes and grows, we see this natural habit of growth repeat itself again and again so that older, stronger leaves stand at the outermost boundary of the harakeke. They are the tupuna leaves. And you see, as you observe, that here is a possible model for a family, for a community, and a great pa harakeke perhaps even for society. I remember exactly the moment of my awakening when death was first revealed to me in the fullness of its immutable character and the weight and inescapable grief of its every implication. Imagination takes on a more vivid form in that moment of realisation. In the vivid reimagining of a familiar sequence of events, familiar and familial, in the storied life of a house, a home, a family, my whānau, my whakapapa kia tuia mai, my foundation brought to this dichotomous convergence of history, tradition, blood and belief by the very fortunate expedient of simple human attraction and the totally predictable willingness which I can only assume exists within all of us somewhere latent or prevailing, simmering away but waiting, always waiting until boom and we give ourselves up in a tangible heat of the moment to the heady subversions of physical passion and desire, irregardless of the moral state of our personal aspects of character, memory and experience had shaped and fixed and formed for us to be guided by, and ultimately, if we get lucky in love, to accommodate and live with until. Nā konei anō te whānau, te whakapapa ki a tuia, ki te pūtahi mōku, mum and dad and everything that came with them and with them are brought together Tuia, tuia mai, for me. These drawn threads of the muka, twisted and bound and plaited and spliced, the fierce little warrior wahine from the marae, we, <laughs> dad was lucky. The fierce little warrior woman from the marae on the great river who knew te reo before she knew this tongue, now issuing from her son, this mother, this ukaipo takufaya of fearless, implacable spirit who loved with ferocious, even savage intensity. You are loved, boy. Do not squander it. Unequivocal in the promise and the threat. Bound to the blue-eyed, red-headed Pākehā man from the vastness and awesome expanse of outback Australia, where he shaped himself in the cacophony of solitude that fills your head in such origin places. He, with his endless labours and love of the great literatures, equipped him with the material knowledge he required, which in turn revealed to him his guiding stars that led him in time to this land and that woman and three books of rare and reasonable authority in 1959 New Zealand, books about Māori, tikanga, art and history, which I have to suppose is what happens if you are a man from one of the literate cultures, coincidentally possessed of self-reliance, appropriate taste and sufficient imagination, and you happen to fall in love with a fiery little wahine from a river full of tanifa. Even today, approaching my 60th year, more than 300 miles and over half a century removed from that divining revelation, I still see death as I did that night. A darker, denser darkness, passing the open doorway of my bedroom and on down the hall to my parents' room, where I could hear my father clearly, 
You'll be all right, love. And the feeling as the denser darkness moved away that some of me was being drawn along with it, a pull, a weight, a heaviness, sodden, gloomy, a kind of dragging mass that left me bereft, breathless. But here's the important bit. Here's the wailing. I know it now and in my heart I knew it then. The rendering of that shallowed form emerged from me, from my own recesses, my own darker-than-darkness places, somewhere deep down in the twisting minuteness where new monsters are constantly forming. But in the penny-drop moment of no return, the veil is forever lifted. The fairy tale has reached its use-by date and happily ever after simply dissolves away like we tell ourselves we always knew it would. And there we are, naked as Adam, and aware. I am present, I am here, kātūwō, in this inevitable, never again unseeable moment of complete and profound understanding. Everyone I love is going to die one day, and so will I. And so, I howled. I howled like an animal, how I howled, kātangi te ruru, kātangi ko o, for the loss of my mother, I howled, nearly choking, ka tangi ko au, ka tangi ano. I howled some more for the end of the deathless years, for days of weight and emptiness and tears upon tears upon tears and long nights of counting hours. Terrible and tormenting waves welled inside me, ki te hōhonu tonu, deep, deep down in the moment, so real, just like every other time mum's heart did all the same wrong things seemed real. God, I howled. And I sobbed and convulsed and carried on inconsolable because the picture was there and vivid and it wouldn't go away. Until finally, through the darkness of my grief, I heard bum. Somewhere out beyond the gloomy shades, the poor Uri that had come descended in a sodden smother and she had that tone. She'd heard my upset above her own concerns and hauled herself to my bedside. What the bloody hell's wrong with you? Why aren't you asleep? Hearing her simmering anger reignite in that moment of utter despair never brought me more joy. So I got my shit together, kind of, faked it the best I could, tried to swallow the grief of my new awareness and scrambled around in the secret anthology of Little White Lies finally scribbling something together, approaching an intelligible response. Oh, I don't know, Mum. I think I had a nightmare. The best lies have a touch of truth about them. Something of an understatement in retrospect. Personally, I believe it's one of the last of our essential developmental milestones. In some respects, possibly the most important in terms of our personal development and sense of humanity, it started back in our infancy with things like object permanence, knowing the kid in the mirror is you, and no, there are no miniature people in the television. There should be a note made of it in our Plunkett books. Boy child Benny discovered death today. His response suggests a reasonably normal emotional range of development, though he should perhaps be aware of a predisposition in the future to completely lose his shit in certain emotionally stressful situations. May need coping strategies, say, when he hits his 40s and life isn't going quite as well as he might have envisaged. As it transpired, Mum did not die that night. In the morning, I asked her, where do we go when we die? 
She told me, we are Māori. We go home, my son. To this day, I find that a comforting thought. So much so these days that I have a tomata tonu sense of certainty about what it actually means to be alive, to be living here, kitiaomarama, vigorous and eager just to exist and express this existence. It's a certainty that comes from being secure in the knowledge that te iwi Māori o te motu, we wānanga death so well. We wear her heavy cloaks as though the feather down of our infancy. We pauri kitewa, we hang out, have a korero, get a feel for the layout. These experiences, these insights that come with them, they are among the navigating stars of our inner spaces. They help us not to get lost within ourselves, but we must be very, very careful not to stay too long. And whatever you do when you are there, do not eat the kai. There's no coming back from that. And while I skirt the borderlands of Te Pōr, I am reminded that this is a memorial occasion. And I am again humbled and grateful to stand in this role today. Dear Margaret, your house of imagining surely must have been such a summary manner mix and playful maze where no door opened to the same scene twice, more than the wishing stars of June to mark the stepping stones that led us here across extravagant Te Aniwaniwa, the Rainbow Bridge. My mother told me about that bridge. Margaret, you would have liked Mum. I mean, she could be a hard-ass, but, you know, to do what you did, you must have been a bit of a hard-ass too, I reckon, Margaret. Yeah, she would have got a laugh out of you. But she would recognise your wairua and she would sense your ihi and she would know you had a forge and a crucible inside you somewhere, even with your technicolour coat and your rainbow afro. I'm glad you misconstrued Te Aniwaniwa as a picnic, though. Crossed over, skipping gaily like the little girl you always were and never were. But it is Uenuku who dwells between the violet and the red extreme. My people know him all too well, blood-soaked. He dreams the death of all his enemies again and again, just to immerse himself in all the energies and emanations of war. Have you ever been to a tangi on Topiri Mountain, Margaret? You can't take a step on that hill without standing on someone in your DNA. Cheeky park our buggers cut the main trunk line across the bottom of the maunga just to emphasise the obvious. But the dead don't care, nor will the grieving concede the line as the mountain prepares to receive another of its own. So the train is always late on tangi days at Topiri which is where I was with Mum sometime after my moment of revelation to which I referred earlier. That bloody Uenuku, he will come, my mother said. He always does. But he has lost his hold on me. My place was taken up. Me tangi koe takutamaiti, tōku whaia e nohora, me taihoana māku. You should lament, my son. My mother, your nana, she died for my little girl's sins. My son, your brother, te taumata te tihihi. He died for your childish transgressions. You have a credit now, my son. I'm the guarantor. If you find courage when the time comes, you will have your way with that particular tanifa. Cut him down to his tears, to his tongues, to his ure. Koro tafito, whakamoe, whakamate, whakapumau tonuatu. And so I came to know with certainty that my mother believed in things beyond the matata, the outermost fringe. 
and she was unafraid to defy such consequences laid for her through simple circumstance of whakapapa, as was her natural inclination. She told me, ah, omens are just omens, Sonny, that is all. There are always signs and portents that something might happen. Piwai waka waka search for flies and Maui dies of vanity. And I would watch her as birds of all kinds followed her through life without invitation, so that sometimes she would shoo them away in frustration and at others sing the cheeky love song in their company. Mehe manurere, ahoe. If I were a bird in flight, of course, all the time she was. There are times in this mahi, in this work, in this life, when the poet, forgetting himself, becomes fully engaged with his persona, which, to be fair, opened and upfront, given occasional public interactions, engagements, expositions, hui, and so forth, has necessitated a judicious application via the persona of management strategies pertaining to the non grata potentials existent within their shared dominion. Although having said that, said that non grata does have some cred. It's legit. Persona non grata. You the man without the welcome. Such a thing was never tikanga. Even enemies must be welcomed. And old Uncle Pohewa, he cannot karanga either. The way is the way, bay. Let auntie lament. She has sent every fallen fool. Thought he could have her, however, for nothing. Te kore, bro. You should know by now. Auntie knows the story better than anyone. Auntie hinengaro. You want a story, bro? You go ask hine. Auntie. She runs the show. Yet Pohewa the blind will conjure from his darkness every tohu, every ahua, just as te kore of absolute nothing is the necessary precondition for te aranga or infinite potential. Whakatau mai nei hiningaro, mihi mai toro mai ki tō whai whakaro, whakakaukau mātou ki, ko, ki tō whakapono nei hoki. Mauri ora mai, tu meke my sister, love your buzz, eh, buzzy as we bathe in your validity, e honi hoki mai rā, ha ha ha, ne, too much, eh, girl. Far out you the real thing, every hine got a little bit of te nei. You know it, eh? You are the little girl lost or the lady concealed. Such is the nature of your mind and mine. And if you are to become somehow just that little more lost, more hidden away in the bipolar aspect of your own personal metaphor, to which haramai pohewa, haramai nei ki te wahi o marie murunga hara, never mind, you're just forgetting yourself. To forget the utility of memory, surely you understand. There is no craft in that. Metaphor defines the terrain of poetry in which there are inevitable consequences when it takes imagination just to make a moment in the lifetime of the forgotten and foregone. It takes the constant habit of craft to render these elegant shifts of one meaning to another, these agonies of majestic disorder and menacing irony, lavished nonetheless by grandiose or subtle virtue to an elevated state of enigmatic calm coincidence there to render and to yield some as yet unknown terror, joy, delusion, doubt, deceit, or the mere and simple sin of hiding nothing in the folds. These are the movements, almost magical with meaning, that alight unanticipated but amplified. A mythic understanding wields to the magnitude of symbol. 
darker and without imagination there can be no metaphor. There is no other margin of the mind with such a forge and crucible ablaze to build such laden symbolism filled with every unknown light and still possess them in their souls. As the senses perceive, so the memory collects. The managing mind considers, reflects, abandons. But where the forming of mighty symbols require the fire, imagination should burn like hell. It now occurs to me, of course, that virtually all of my waking hours are set to the work of imagining. Sometimes long alone and lost, the sideways of days and nights, reeling of time and a moment-to-moment existence, little more than the constantly unfolding elaboration of an ever-wandering, childishly curious mind applied to that which my senses are able to render and my memory can recall. In the meantime, made of keeping one eye sharply on the road that rises before me. These days, thankfully, I meander at a gentler pace. No choice, of course, no burden either. You see, I'm of an age. As was made apparent to me quite recently, as it happens, in the Spartan antiseptic of a medical facility. A doctor exquisitely formed, it has to be said, the most beautifully, aesthetically flawless and sublime in merely one-third of my life has she even existed as the twilight corrodes my diminishing senses and other of my urges veer towards dysfunction and certain pharmaceutical assistances. I can't see as far, I can't make out details, certain frequencies are lost to me, up there at the higher range especially. Tastes go rudely from bland to insipid. Everything smells like a wet dog dying on rubbish day. Takes longer to notice the heat of the flame, the nick of the razor, the pang of regret, the fear of not knowing, the guilt of never admitting it either. Too bad, old man. Yes, you are of an age. Yet, pleasingly inspired of the telltale signs of recent almost noble decay, I find that I am able still to conjure within myself a novel apparition, fleshing out the fantasy, answering the question, revealing in the vague and blurry suggestion something almost recognisable in simple terms, furnishing the living lie. Lay with me in meaning, as a vain conceit allows the mortal markings of a lone man, lined impermanently from the second scar that pierced his side to the cleaving of the moon. The savoured sin, the succulent suggestion, standing still or staggering as gamely as a plundered doe. The slip inside. As far as I can go, brave boys, the limit is unlimited. All the way, I would have said, and only ever in the following of myself, and only ever as the lone man law allows, and only ever as the longing lie proceeds, and only ever bound to find within the essence and the shape, the shade, the nature of the fire, Definitions made of logic consequences are too neatly pretty to be worth a pauper's piss. Deformed realities that blindly do not lie nor leave you wiser than you were before you knew this tongue of other meanings and a language poorly unmade, not of metaphors, but unfit monsters terrifying to imagine, slovenly obscene and yet awkwardly applied as every other lying aspect faced a lurid existence, once observed or twice observed and with solemnity come dancing gently, softly into being, seemingly without you cause or any lesser fault aside from mine. Far better yet, no ill effect is there too evident. A bet for every never ever said and damn forever if it never was to be. 
To set within this tale the fairy faded, violated fae that every story hither tells the darkest of the Sunday sins, the squalling of damp and rotting sediments where mother to the bloating fiend exposed the cankered nippling of a suckled scar and no amount of wondering words adorning in the dumb deception of a dogged rhyme could stand in testament and hold her eye. There never was whatever that what was there, the only story still unfolding now, and even so, this mild confusion may be probably almost certainly attention at the lure to entice barely the shimmering of a secondary sun that shapes in miniature above this wallowing of Monday in the mind. What rising is the weak eclipsed of bored undoing, undiscovered, underdoing, underdone, and undone doing, undering and underdoing done. The one and only Lonely Hearts Club, breaking love to bitter bones and fading yellow pieces of disdain, my granny's putrefying bones. What's my name, you shit-smouldering supplicant? Burn the sorrowsome and agency of grim derision, uglier as ugly is when all is and within, and when with all and when without, of all my every undoing done, was there even, if at all, was there any, was there only, was there one, was there one, was one, there was one there, one was, there was, there one, was there, or which, where one, was there. Matafaka nei, matahohonu nei, matati matata, matapurangara, hei ha hei, hei ha hei. Here is my haka. Here is my hihi, ihi, here is my son. Here is my mana, here is my mihi. My dad used to say, kind of funny in a way, the things you see when you haven't got a gun. I have written before now and uttered the very same thing on the subject, that as a younger man, I owned an arsenal. The guarantee of a civil society and peace among men, they say, are you serious? Of course I am serious. Never consider a man who possesses an arsenal as anything but serious. Because, you know what they say, guns don't kill people, people will kill people. For a while, a very good while, and prosperous too, I did enjoy the act of killing things. That kind of hunter-gatherer carnage was my kind of civilised savagery. Neither sacred nor profane, discarding the grace, I ate what I killed. And then, in a gentle sacrilege, I sang amen for being it so. I sang it the same way Elvis and his choir sang it when my mother took me to the cinema. Amen. 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 Sometimes, even now, I sing it still because in the reverie and reminiscence of these solo sing-alongs with myself, my father long faded away from us all. Exhausted from a lifetime pushing shit uphill, the replica of an acolyte Sisyphean would join me with his baritone at least for a chorus or two. Once the hunter, trailing ancient knights, the game, the slaughter, much the same as always, he would despair in warning dreams, devouring his children in a frenzy of symbolism, gorge himself to poisoning extremes, scream for the purgative to scour the lining from his liver as Auntie Hiningaro sang her karakia as the soundtrack to the torment of my father's nightmare apparition. And to this day... I still cannot discern my father's reasoning that he had never done enough. For my grandfather, my koro, there was no torment in his visions. Comfortable in his sharp Sunday suit and his wide brim fedora, but a shine on his shoes like obsidian, thus 
He is dressed as a king keeper. True to his manner, he carried his first love always. My nana, of whom we have already spoken, she is there along with his brother. And my brother too. Together they caught it all long into the evening. The dead seemed easier company. My koro had no less acquaintance above ground except that the living always seemed to be not quite always what they seemed to be. The dead, on the other hand, are always dead. All the dead want from koro is his life. All koro wants from his dead is to be able to give them what they want. Before we had words, we still had imaginations that conjured memories and experience and the summary of our senses into fears and realizations, forming intuitions and instincts and endless curiosity, or so I assume. As I have already suggested, our imaginative potential made us mighty. But the discovery of meaning and the making of words, well, that was our transcendent epiphany moment. We heard our own voices and understood the implication. Language became the universal app that gave us definition, and all of us became poets because everything was metaphor. Words give imagination room to manoeuvre, to flex, to experiment, innovate, fool around, explore new ground. Words add colour, detail, nuance and subtlety. Words extend our range of emotions, the scope, depth and complexity of our thinking. Words give clarity, words conflate, words confound and words confuse. Tuiateha, tuiate kupu, tuiate korero. At the end of it all, we are nothing but a gathering of words. Kia ora. Thank you very much for listening.